Welcome to the Change Africa podcast, where we bring you stories of inspiring individuals and top leaders leading Africa's transformation. I'm your host, Isaac Kujurenu Abwa, and together with my co-host, Daniel Merki, we'll be exploring diverse perspectives, challenges, and opportunities for growth and development on the continent every week. Each episode, we delve into a different aspect of African life, featuring knowledgeable and engaging guests who provide unique insights and a fresh perspective on the issues affecting the continent across a wide range of topics from economics to culture and social issues. So whether you're already well-versed in African affairs or you're just starting to explore this fascinating and complex part of the world, the Change Africa podcast is an excellent resource for you. Sit back and enjoy another thought-provoking discussion that will inform and challenge you to expand your understanding of Africa. Today, my guest on the podcast is Anita Eskin. Anita is a highly respected authority on media and communications with over two decades of experience in corporate communications, strategic communications management, and television content development and management. As the CEO of Anita Eskin Media, which includes Boss Lady Productions, Anita Eskin Network, and AEM Films, she has been a charismatic entrepreneur who has empowered communities through her work. Her illustrious career as an event host has led her to preside over 200 global events spanning from high-level dialogues with prime ministers, presidents, and monarchs to prestigious award ceremonies and global fundraising events. Anita has twice been ranked one of the 100 most influential women in Africa and has been named among the 500 most influential Africans around the world. In 2023, she was ranked amongst Africa's top 50 most impactful voices, cementing her role as a media trailblazer. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an extraordinary media personality that we all grew up mesmerized by. This is the Change Africa podcast with Anita Eskin. Anita, you're welcome to the podcast. Well, Isaac, thank you very much for having me, except you make me feel so old. You know, we all grew up. And I'm thinking, oh, Isaac, what an introduction. But listen, I, I am honored I that if you, if you grew up listening to me, I'm simply honored that I'm still here for you to keep, you know, to keep me relevant. Thank I you, love Isaac. that. I love that. But I did grow up doing that. So I don't know about Daniel. Daniel, what is your experience uh, with Anita Eskin? I mean, I know you came to Ghana. Yeah, but it's funny because you know how little I know about the media space, how little I watch TV. And basically, the only person that I have watched actual content is Anita Erskine, basically. Because no, when, I came, when I moved to Ghana, I mean, the only, channel I, the only channels I had and the only things I watched, the few things, that's what I can remember well. So... I grew up, not grew up as a child, but grew up in Ghana with you. <laughs> Daniel, the check is in the mail. Thank you very much for, <laughs> for, for letting me be um, um, more or less like a TV or media compass for you. Thank you very much. Very kind words, guys. Yeah. No, for, for me, I think the most pivotal and enjoyable TV moment, and I also have stopped watching TV, I think, eight years for now. Uh, for me, would be Vasat once the one that was perhaps one of the more enjoyable um, Anita and Skin TV media moments. We're talking about someone who, in my opinion, is very rare to see. I mean, obviously, we have 
people who have done their best to cut across both the media and communications landscape. But right. for someone to have um, done that at the highest level, in fact, winning, when I saw, when I was doing my research, I think you've won an award category in almost every particular landscape at the highest level, in radio, in TV, in communications, you know, all of it. Uh, where did that start from? Like, I want to know the, the beginning story of this, especially when you were born also. Again, something that I got to know while I do my research in Israel. How long did you stay in Israel? That's my first question before we go into that. Genesis. Well, I wish, uh, Isaac, I wish I could give you an exotic answer like, oh man, I grew up in Jerusalem and Jesus and I were best friends. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, the reality of it all is my father, you know, uh, may he rest in peace, was working in the Middle East on a peacekeeping mission with the United Nations at the time. And I always tell people that I know, you know, I'm the eighth of eight children. So I feel like no pressure, but I feel like my mother really felt or wanted that her last born to be born um, in this beautiful, blessed country. And perhaps, I don't know, I think she thought I was going to be a nun or a priest or something like that. Um, but I was born in Israel. Don't remember anything of it. My older siblings do. Um, and then essentially I moved back to Ghana. I moved to Ghana. I don't know. I, I was a baby. I was a toddler when I came to Ghana. So it really isn't as if my recollection of Jerusalem where I was born is, is, is clear or precise or, or, well, if I may use the word exceptional. I don't remember any of it. But then that puts you in the framework of people at least who were, you know, near Jesus, at least when they were. <laughs> well, well, apparently, apparently, and if my recollection serves okay. me right, and I probably need to confirm with my mother, apparently, I was born where Jesus had the last supper. I, I was, I was baptized, sorry. Apparently, I was baptized where Jesus had the last supper. So, I mean, put it into perspective of a very notorious child in school. My mother must have been thinking, but she was baptized when Jesus had the last supper, surely. <laughs> you know? And I think to this day, she just doesn't know what went wrong because she did all the right things where I was born, where I was baptized. And look at me now. Come on. You know, my poor mom. <laughs> no. So I, I like the, I like the very outright different outlook that the conversation is taking because for me, I was wondering, how do you want to have a conversation with Anita Eskin? You've been interviewed by so many people. I would hope that this bit about Israel and where you were baptized is something that people don't know. That's one good reason to listen to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, Daniel and Isaac, clearly you put me, you put me in a corner. I can't wiggle my way out of this. Probably the very first time anybody has ever asked me or started a conversation with where I was born and me having to be outright and, 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 and clear about the fact that I, I am so far from being an angel considering where I was born. Definitely, definitely. Uh, but let's hone on that notoriety. Um, you, you grew up in Ghana and then you um, were sent to Canada where after, I think, your preteens, you were, um, or in your teenage, you were mostly in Canada and that's where you grew up. I want to know when you mean notoriety and I think for most people that were definitely... Um, became media personalities, they were probably outspoken 
And you know, in our culture, the outspokenness is not entirely welcome, especially when you are young. What did that notoriety encompass for you? Well, I think um, it's very, very smart that you bring out the concept of being outspoken, um, growing up in Ghana. So the cultural elements of being brought up in an African country, the traditional element of understanding where to speak, how to speak, um, because I'm authentically and originally African, um, vis-a-vis going to, con- uh, you know, a country, you know, such as Canada, where did it position me? I-, I think, honestly, guys, it positioned me in a space of understanding the value of my voice, but not in terms of how I can speak to adults or speak to my elders, no, but in terms of how I can make my thoughts and my sentiments clearly heard and understood without it seeming like I am being what we would traditionally call in Ghana, you know, too known or, you know, that sort of thing, or you don't respect, you know, in, 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 in the, the Akan dialect. So Canada essentially pushed me against that grain of wanting to understand what's the value of my voice. You know, yes, I'm in a multicultural country where, you know, a lot of immigrants have moved to. So we all come to the table with a plethora of experiences, regardless of whether we're from Eastern Europe or, uh, uh, or, or Southern Africa, whatever it is. But to be able to say, okay, what do I want my voice to mean when I walk into any room, when, when, when I'm speaking to anyone, what do I want my voice to be? And what do I want the words coming out of my mouth to be affiliated and aligned with? So Canada for me was my very first foray into speak up, speak out, be heard, be understood, and let your vision, the vision you see for yourself, for your life, be felt from the perspective of being authentically African, being truly African, laying claim to your Africanism, but giving it a global feel or a global relevance. So I think, honestly, I understood this about myself the moment I stepped into Canada, knowing I'm not trying to be anything other than African. But I, at the end of the day, being able to travel around the world gives you an extraordinarily, you know, a beautiful perspective and helps you understand other people's cultures. So the voice I have today is was born and birth out of that. It's a new place. It's an open place. Um, it's where people are speaking. How are you heard? What are you saying such that people can see the power and the beauty of Africa and your firm grasp on your cultural um, or, or the respect for your culture and tradition still uh, through what you're saying and how you're saying it? That's, that's very insightful. And thank you very much for that. <laughs> that's very fast education. I'm tempted to ask that, you know, that's the genesis of finding your voice. And I wanted to zoom into now the present. If you ask yourself that same question now, that was the value of your voice. What do you think that after the very illustrious career you have, what is the value of your voice now? We're definitely going to go back into that stage. But when you reflect now, what do you see the value of your voice is now? I would have lost the value of my voice if I had continued traditional media the way I had started. And I say this very carefully and with respect to all the people that gave me opportunities. I mean, I always say I have immense respect, immense gratitude towards the many men and women who opened the door for me across the media landscape, you know, in Ghana or in Canada, what they taught me and the opportunities they gave me. Um, the connection between then 
and now what I discovered when I went to Canada is the fact that even though you do have a mouthpiece or you are a mouthpiece, even though you have a microphone, even though you have a podcast, it's really important to align your voice with something that is innately you, that is unapologetically you, and that nobody can take away from you. So when I decided that, listen, I love what I do in the media landscape, but really what I do on camera or the fact that I do have a camera at my disposal, the fact that I do have a microphone in front of me really essentially is the shell of, 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 of the tunnel but in that tunnel there is a huge vacuum so you've got the tunnel what is in it and where is what is in it going so the what is in it was my desire to advocate for women my desire to advocate for girls women in leadership doesn't matter who you are be an outstanding leader and this is how to do it girls in education these girls have you know aspiration they have dreams how do i assist the environment and the community around them to invest in the girls so I, I, in discovering that voice that I told you about in Canada, when I came to Ghana and I went from one media house to another and people were so supportive of my career, on my own, I had to stop and say, so, so all of this, to what end? For what? For whom? At a point, you know, and, and, and at, uh, Isaac, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you know, I've got all these awards. What is the essence of the awards if you're the only one who can celebrate them? Honestly. If after picking it up on the night, you give a great speech, you go home. And so what? The answer to the end so hot, what was, well, who is it for? What is it for? The people it is for, do they know it is for them? Are you just doing this and you're going to keep doing it to, to, your, to your 40 and your 50 and your 60? But the people who are giving you their time, their data, their, you know, that... And I say the time because, you know, you know, Daniel, you're talking about watching me or, or, or paying attention to me. Then it's time you're spending on me. What am I giving back to you? Am I giving you anything to learn? Am I giving you anything to be inspired by? Am I giving you anything to walk away and feel like, oh, what a fantastic use of my 30 minutes. So to answer your question, Isaac, that tunnel that was built by the microphone, the camera, today, the Internet, it was a void until I stopped and I said, so to whom? For what? For where? What is the end goal? The end goal for me was to fine tune my voice, was to remold my voice and let it serve a purpose. And I chose that purpose to be women of African descent, African women, women of color around the world and girls around the world who have this innate desire to be a little bit more than just a statistic, to be in communities and in, 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 in places where they could feel that somebody believes in them and somebody's giving them the opportunity to be their best self as far as education is concerned. So we've had a lady on this podcast and you probably know her. She's called Aisha. She is the founder of Power to Girls Foundation. Aisha has an interesting story. Obviously, Aisha doesn't come from the media space, but Aisha also was you know, born in Ghana, but then sent to the sent to Canada and then had this renaissance also in Canada where she found out that she could be the voice of women like that. What I'm interested to find out that the difference between you and Aisha is that you built a huge career first. Aisha did that starting from seventeen. At what point did you feel that you could start doing that? And do you feel like having built a career now? For example, when we look at you with all the one one that we do and respect we do, that positions you to be able to influence more 
Or is there something that you wish you had started earlier or something that all always done? But it might be in camera. Well, I have to be very honest. I am a firm believer in there is no better time to start what you're doing than the time you started. So my mind doesn't go back to, ooh, I wish I had started this earlier. Because if I had started it any earlier, it wouldn't have had the quality that it has now. If I'd started it any earlier, it would have been at a time where perhaps somebody would have pressured me into doing something that means something. But I had to start it when it hit me. It hit my very core. It hit my, 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 you know, the, the my bone marrow. It hit my spirit that no, something needs to give something needs to be reimagined something needs to be rethought in order for me to be an element or an essential element in my community in my society so i mean aisha is a very good friend of mine and aisha started when she felt that something and her something was when she was 17 i felt that something when i had my kids and that was when i was 29 and 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 the motions of feeling that wait hang on a second why do i do what i do those motions started i remember it was about three months into my pregnancy and being in rooms where people honestly said to me your career is over that is and they didn't say it for somebody to whisper it or they didn't whisper it and i caught the whisper they said it to me point blank gun in your face your career is over because people in the media are only as good as their single lives especially women they're only as good as their single lives and their youth allow them to be and i remember looking at this person's face and thinking I will not be your statistic. And this statement I've just made is a statement Aisha also made on my show. And, and we literally just felt like, wow, we felt the same thing, but at the different times in our lives, because something has got to move you, push you to feel like, no, I will not be what you are, you're thinking that I will be. And my moment of hang on, this has got to be was when I started to feel pushback. A lot of pushback and i don't even think sincerely that those people realized they were pushing me back i mean if as a woman you decide to have children you decide to get married and this is what you want your life to be nobody has the right to say well because of what your decisions are you're never gonna be what your dreams or your ambitions are telling you you're gonna be so i'm happy mine happened where when it did because it was fueled and 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 inspired by by my experience and my experience happened when my experience happened so in this journey of you know bringing the more powerful voices of women around the world to inspire other women and girls is there a moment is there a recollection of stories or a story where you felt like i'm happy i'm doing this and i'm happy i'm doing this and this moment for this person were there particular moments like that or a story you want to share well, Isaac, the blessing in what I've decided to do and how I know that, you know, I believe in God and how I know that God made me and, and molded me to be this person that I, I am is the fact that this question you're asking is, is, a, is the reality of my everyday life every single day. And I do not exaggerate. There's always a, a message in my inbox, regardless of which social media platform. There's always a phone call coming in from somebody, somebody, somebody. There's always even close friends of mine, affiliates or, or, or allies of mine who stop and feel that, wow, they're in a moment that needs the Anita Erskine effect. It is such a blessing. So I have a plethora of stories. We don't even have enough time to listen to those stories. But the basis, maybe, maybe what I should share with you is what's the bottom line for these stories? It is the authenticity that I have expressed and exposed time and time and again. It is the, 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 the desire to encourage that I have shared and I have showed time and time and again. 
It is the fact that I fear no one. I fear nothing. I fear no institution um, or the fear that if I'm too wild and ambitious, if I say certain things the way I do, someone is going to be uncomfortable. It is the fear, it is the lack of fear that I may not be the popular vote or I may not have the popular vote in what I'm advocating for, in what I'm saying. So these stories, they're in my head. They live rent free in my head every single day. They're in my ear. They're in my heart. And literally, I mean, regardless of which day, regardless of which time, which territory, uh, uh, which nationality the person is, they're coming to me every single day. What you may see on my show, Sheroes, is a fraction of the stories I'm seeing, I'm hearing every day, of course. My show is what I choose to share, but it doesn't negate the amount of conversations and stories that are told to me in the privacy of perhaps my office. But I'm seeing these stories absolutely around the clock every single day. And it is a blessing and an honor to be a custodian of these stories. So, Anita, from the time you had that realization that in order to follow your vision and maintain your voice towards that transition was it like when you had the realization was it kind of immediate or there was kind of a process you had to go through and like what was the process and the difficulties in that i didn't even discover the process until i had gone through it i didn't even realize oh i'm going through a process you know because you don't also wake up one day and say, hmm, I'm going to change the career path that I've chosen for myself. You know, you, you get hit by a few, a few big bombs. You know, it, it's, it's like, and, and by the way, Daniel, it's not that everybody has to go through what I went through in order to discover who they are. Some people are blessed and they discover it the day they finish school. Oh, this is what I'm going to be. Um, but for me, it was a process and beautiful question because that process or the realization of the process only hit me some years ago. Um, I'm in my forties now. I changed paths when I was in my early thirties, around 32, 33. So easily 10 years ago is when I realized that, wait, hang on a second. Hang on a second. What's the essence of my experience? What's the essence of my real life experience if I cannot take advantage of it and use it to benefit the next person? Who may be going through the next, the same thing, but who doesn't have the platforms that I have? So it was a process and that process really entailed what is happening. I had to understand what's going on physically, mentally, emotionally. What is going on too? Realizing that, oh crap, I'm going through something I probably have heard about in the distant distance, but never really paid attention to because it wasn't happening to me. Three, okay, this is the reality. It is happening to me. And I don't have a mountaintop to stand up and say to everybody around me, give me a chance. I know this is the choice I've made. No. So, so, so I know this choice I've made. Pardon me. No, I, I didn't didn't need that mountaintop. So upon realizing that, wait, hang on, life is changing. Evolution is happening. People have their thoughts of who you are, who you should be. You agree with some of them. You disagree with most of them. Perhaps if you, if you disagree this much and if the space and the environment is making you feel this bad, you can turn it into something. So honestly, Honestly, Daniel, now that I look back, it probably took me a good five years to move from realization to activation. And in that moment of evolution, were there people that inspired you, you looked up to, and the new evolution of what Anita Anskin would become? Isaac, 
I don't know if I have the right uh, to say on this platform that it was so heartbreaking to realize not everybody wanted to have this conversation with me. And not everybody wanted to agree with what I was saying. And not everybody wanted to even have a, you know, an open conversation about what happens in a woman's life that perhaps makes her stop to accept it is happening and then to decide that she can take advantage of what is happening. So you know what? There may have been private conversations. There are, you know, I, I do have to say, and I'm going to use this platform to talk about my dear friend, my big sister, Jibodi Dosu, who time and time and again told me her own stories of utter disappointment, her own stories of deep nothingness and her own story of brokenness and having to catch herself from losing herself in those moments. And she's one person, I, I have to say, she's one person that helped me realize that there is, there is, it's okay. It is very okay. You're falling, you're losing, you're broke, you are, you, you are dejected, you're rejected, you are, you are uh, disillusioned. It is fine. What is not fine if you throw your hands up and say, Oh, well, well, that's the end. I might as well just tap into my, I don't know, my, my, an, an, another kind of, of life that I want to live for myself. Um, then, of course, my lovely mother, who would beautifully and in her wisdom silently listen to everything that I was saying. And more often than not, my mother would say, don't be afraid to accept that this is happening to you. But when you've accepted it's happening to you, again, in that same vein, don't be afraid to share it. So were there a lot of women that would have jumped at supporting me? I think so. But I also think perhaps to be fair, I was also very selective with whom I was having this conversation because around me, it just felt like people didn't want to accept. Um, and, and I keep telling this to a lot of girls that I mentor today that they've got the blessing of women understanding that there is value in sharing. At the time, it wasn't that women didn't understand there was value in sharing. It was, okay, I understand, but how do I do it? The world is different now. Gosh, look at us. We've got podcasts. You know, you, you change, you know, change Africa podcast alone has the power to make someone feel enlightened and encouraged in my time it is charlie <laughs> if you're lucky if you're lucky ah uh, how do i say this without sounding derogatory if you're lucky somebody wanted to to even listen to you um and then boldly tell you that they were going through the same thing but they would listen they may not necessarily say hey me too um because people because of what the backlash could be respectfully a lot of people also held back and they held close to their hearts what was essentially a major problem so yeah I, th I think i think it's fair to say that perhaps i didn't go looking for the people who could have supported me and perhaps i chose to talk to the people that i was comfortable speaking to i think in this transition really one of the major things is you decided to have a family and stick to it and how you were saying that for some reason, for most media personalities, and again, especially women, they have to stick to, they usually have to stick to a certain lifestyle that does not allow them to fully enjoy the benefits of a family life so that they can have a longevity in their careers. Why do you think particularly to so, 
And why do you think that there is uh, an expectation for those women to not want to have that aspect of life, even though they will have it? And for you, particularly, you've also said that you probably would choose your family or your career. Why is that different for you too? I think, and I will, I will say, disclaimer, I don't speak for everybody because I have mentioned this a few times in a few rooms and people have said, well, I didn't experience the same thing. I didn't go through the same thing as you. So I've had to, you know, step back and think to myself, okay, then maybe it's unfair to generalize because clearly people have made it. People have done it. Um, if I had problems doing it, then hey, then that's my problem, you know. So I don't think that it's fair to say, well, this is, you know, traditionally what happens. But I do say that given what I experienced, I was given an opportunity to forego the decision of being a family woman. And that opportunity was enveloped in advice that built a certain degree of self-doubt. So I was given the opportunity. And the opportunity was, okay, well, if that's what you want to do, go ahead. But that go ahead was always followed by a but, you know, your husband isn't going to make you do this. Uh, when you have children, you're not going to be able to do this. And if I can say sincerely, I realized it wasn't a media landscape issue. It was something that other people in other industries were talking about. It's like the moment you have children and you're married, there's a certain expectation that they feel they cannot expect from you because there's real life. And the real life is there is that other side to balance. And then there is professional life. There is this other thing to take care of. So you almost feel like you're in the middle of having to make a decision as to which one would you prefer. I mean, come on, Isaac, today, a lot of organizations are really assisting mothers, you know, especially motherhood, mothers to bring their children to school. So, of course, the status quo is status quo is changing. I wish it will change faster. But I, I feel that to answer your question, it wasn't just a media issue. And the more people that I had the courage to speak to, the more I realized, regardless of industry, they were feeling like, well, they've got an option. Option one. Well, we really would love that you remain single because we've got this promotion coming up. You know, we've got this country we want you to go to and we want, you know, we've got this job. But if you, if, Charlie, if you're married with children, you might be distracted. So dreams or dreams of professional dreams or, <laughs> or motherhood dreams, which one, you know, so. And I know a lot of people who professionally will not get married and have children because it is their choice that they want to never have that break. They want to never have to go through that self-doubt that they could never bounce back. It's their choice and I respect their choice for it. But I also know that in this era in which we live, the fact that you have to look at the wall and say, well, if I really want to press my head against you, I'm going to have to make that choice. But deep down inside, I wish I could have it all is quite a disappointment you know so really it's it's not a media issue you know it's it's across board you know and when i had my children i wasn't even working solely for media i was working for corporate as well and even in that corporate environment i remember having to fight um and I'll beat not fight against the, the 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 company promoting me not at all but i had to fight to be seen as anita not anita the pregnant woman you know, and I think the more I stood up and, and showed that, listen, I can because I choose to be here and I choose to be physically able to do it. Not every pregnant woman can do the wild things that I did. And I respectfully say if the body cannot, if the body can't do it, 
don't try to prove anything to anybody because it's not worth it. Um, but I worked hard to proving that, listen, I'm very capable and very able to go on this trip to Congo at, in, in my fifth month. I'll do it. And I'll do it carefully because physically I can. Mentally I can. And I was given the opportunity to do it. I'm wondering those voices or that advice when you say people, was it usually coming from men or women or it was a mixture? It's so powerful, the question you've asked. <laughs> The people who encouraged me the most to take a break and step away from it because I cannot do it, drum roll, were the women. Yeah, I kind of expected Yep, that. guys, drum roll. <laughs> it was the women. Daniel, you don't have the right to saying, say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, but, 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 but please let's, let's, let's exist in an age where we can share our thoughts without fear of being yeah. lambasted. Yes. I, that's you know a joke, I mean? right? That's I mean, a joke. You know, that's yeah, a joke. But, yeah. yeah, but, but, so Daniel was like, hmm, let's see where the drum roll is going. Um, but Daniel, hey, your suspicions. I mean, whatever your suspicion means to anybody who's listening, the reality is the reality. And so I had more women saying to me, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be doing this. If you do this, the child will come out looking like this. If you do that, there's a chance that you will lose this pregnancy. You know, I remember when I was blah, 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 and I couldn't do this. So you shouldn't do it. You know what I mean? Um, the men felt listen, this Anita girl, let's not even mess with her. But yes, did they feel or did I have a hunch sometimes that somebody didn't want me in a certain room because, you know, I, I'm so heavy and I'm so delicate? Not that I can remember, you know, uh, uh, um, specifically, but I tell you, and the reason I became who I am and advocate for what I do is if there was a woman sharing her fear, Eh? And that is what it was most of the time. It was not hate. It was not disdain. It was not, uh, 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 it, it was not designed to derail me. No, it was designed to make me feel that, hey, womanhood is delicate. Do not aspire for too much when you're carrying a child. You might lose the child. Do not force your body to do too much when you're carrying a child. So all of these, you know, and I mentioned earlier on, or, or I said it, self-doubt Self-doubt comes from way too many noises saying the same thing, even at a different time. And it happened to me. But I thought, wait, come on. You're telling me that every single time I decide to have a child, I have to abandon my dreams. Why can I, why can I not have this beautiful child and still hold on to my dreams? Of course, at the end of the day, within reason. Why can't you even advise me how to perhaps find some kind of balance? But why must it stop at once you make this decision? Forget it. You are done. It's absolutely wrong. You know, so I felt that, listen, I'm physically able by God's grace. My child is healthy by God's grace. Yes, of course, you're a bit slower than usual, but you are capable. Why must you make me feel like I should stop dreaming? because I am about to have a child or I have become a family woman. It's absolutely wrong not to even encourage me to look at this as a completely new phase of life where I perhaps have to master the art of combining the various things in life because after all, we need balance some way, somehow. So yeah, Daniel, long answer to a short question. A lot of women came, came at me. They came at me hard and I had to really listen to the words in order not to be offended and understand 
why do they have such, why are they so worried for me? And I realize you're worried for me because you've been worried for yourself. So wait, hang on, maybe I should turn around and help you to be a little bit more confident with the choices you're making. You know, so, so yeah, long, long, long answer to a short question. Yeah. But yeah, Daniel. I mean, my suspicion in quotes was not coming from a perspective of women mm. would do it. It's rather, I was thinking of something and I think often it's people put a box around themselves and th there is the limitation. And if somebody is pushing that box, it's kind of uncomfortable because you deep down have to confront the truth that it could be possible. Yes, there might be sacrifices, there are limits, because the, where I learned that mostly is coming from Switzerland to Ghana, where people were, where I heard people mm -hmm. saying, you can't do this, you can't do this, towards other Ghanaians. And then, because they didn't look at me as a Ghanaian, for me, it was perfectly fine. I could say it, no issue. And I'm like, yeah, but this guy is saying something similar as I say, similar aspiration, or even, a lesser aspiration and they would criticize him but they wouldn't criticize me so that is where my mind went with the box yeah i'm i'm with you 100 percent because often it's people who have been able who have not been able to do something who are almost always the first to discourage you from trying and i i really appreciate where that question came from because you know, and I used to crack a joke with, with some of my male colleagues. And I used to say, don't look, don't look at me with the eyes you look at your wife with, you know, so don't feel uncomfortable that my feet are swollen because, you know, your wife respectfully may have had a few children. And when you see me, you think you understand what I'm going through. So I used to joke and laugh at that. And, they, and, and, you know, they'll cradle me. Oh, do you need this? Do you need that? And I'll burst out laughing half the time. Like, Hey, Charlie, no, I mean, I can take care of myself, but you'll find that generally regardless i mean today we're talking about my personal story but i find that in my experience listening to so many stories that i alluded to the last time i mean just just a few minutes ago a lot of people will discourage you from doing something because they were unable to do it so it could be climbing up mount kilimanjaro if they couldn't do it they'll say hey ah, that mountain hmm if you go you can die oh hmm and your nose and it, you know they'll they'll do that and i think that's human nature but what makes us who we are today, what makes us latch onto the concept of changing the status quo is the fact that we, we try to understand where that doubt is coming from. We try to understand where that discouragement is coming from. And we take the bold claim to redirecting all of that. So, so I would boldly, if I had the chance, go back to some of those women who tried to discourage me from living this larger than you know, living this large life where I have all the things that I want, where I'm everything I want to be at any given time. I would go back to them and ask them how I can teach them if how I can teach them to, to, to live a full life. Um, and that's what it is. Fear stops you from living the life you deserve. And that's the bottom line for me as far as, you know, what we're just talking about, Daniel. One also of, I mean, most people need to see things happening. So that's also the importance of representation of role models. I think once, even if someone hears you speak about this, now your personal experience, it kind of, it starts to enlarge mm -hmm. that, that box. And I think even in the, in the example of the African context, what I mentioned before is a very, is, is, is a very similar thing of where Yes, there is kind of what we have, what has been accepted, but then there is also, you don't see people doing it. 
So are people like you? We're talking from uh, an African, well, a Ghanaian perspective, or even I would say it's it's unfair to sometimes generalize because we have, you know, more than goodness knows how many uh, 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 dialects and ethnic groups in Ghana. So there's certain ethnic groups whereby, you know, what, the moment you get pregnant, you're going to go live with your mother because they believe in it. You know what I mean? And and it works. It works depending on who you are, who you are as a woman. The moment you try to do anything different from that, the community comes for you to say, it's not done this way. But if you can show them that, listen, it could be done another way. You become the, you know, the spokesperson of a different kind of thing. So you remove yourself out of the box that makes everybody comfortable. And by the way, you will be uncomfortable yourself when you make that decision, but you're sacrificing your comfort to prove to people that there's other ways to do what we've always been saying only works. How about we try the other way? You know, so, so I find that if you, if you are pregnant with a child and you want to live with your parents, it has its values. And I see a lot of people doing that, which have a certain cultural, uh, traditional, and even sometimes a medical value to them. But if you are put in that category simply because it is what is done and you don't want to belong to it, brace yourself for what it comes with, you know, and that's the other thing. When you want to do things differently from everybody else, You've got to brace yourself and you've got to take fault if it doesn't work, by the way. So Anita is the CEO in residence at the CEO in residence program for Trent University, which you are alumni of. The program seeks to mentor young students and it seems to be, from what I've read, and I know you're going to underscore it, but please don't, (laughs) a lot of... Um, extraordinary people in that position, a board chair of the Royal Bank of Canada, you know, the past seasons of the Four Seasons Hotels and Resorts. And if anyone has seen the Four Seasons anywhere in the world, you know, you should understand the kind of um, place that is. You have the <laughs> opportunity to be there. Mentorship is a big thing for you, has been always for you in your role. What are you telling these people in this program? But also, what is your your view of that, the important role of mentorship in our society, especially for young women, for children, and for young people at that age that dearly need the mentorship, the advice of older women and people who have gone through it and can reflectively give them insights on how to live their life. Isaac, I cradle this question with so much, you know, uh, maybe it's passion. And I love this question because it connects with what we've just talked about, about other people's fears. Mentorship is not breathing your fear down someone's throat. Mm. Ironically for me, mentorship is where you stop and think about the things you could have done, which ultimately would have made you better. And then teach that person in front of you how to do perhaps not just what you did, but what you could have done. Because there's value in the lessons of letting go of something that could have accelerated us. So CEO in residence for me by the uh, Trent Business School uh, uh, or Trent School of Business is an opportunity to teach, share and even be taught uh, by these students and and, and these these uh, uh individuals in the Trent University community, there is everything about power in your aspiration. The thing about it is we're all, we all have some kind of aspiration. Nobody's aspiration is too small or is too big 
each of us has our own individual aspiration. So I can be in a room, in a mentorship session with a young man or a young woman who wants to pursue medicine. That's their aspiration. My job as CEO in residence is to help them overcome, one, the kind of personal or even institutional challenges that they feel they're facing. Help them navigate that too. Help them find their own personality within this ambition. Because the thing about dreams and ambition is, it is your personality that serves as fuel. It is the courage and the boldness within your personality that serves as fuel to, to, to realize your ambition. And then three, where I have a shared experience, especially I find that with the international students, there are a lot of shared experiences coming all the way to Trent University from the beautiful Ghana being by yourself and then you come and then it's winter and the food is not like yours and having to navigate all these differences. Let's talk about being an international student, being the only one uh, to come into a new space. The weather is, you know, is cold. The food is not like what you're used to at school or at home. Uh, um, of course, it's in school. So there are all these different people. You don't know anybody. You sometimes find yourself wondering, maybe should I just have stayed home? So these are also shared experiences I have with international students. And what I try to do specifically with that collective is to share how I overcame those moments of self doubt how I overcame those moments of you know being homesick to the point where you really feel like I shouldn't have made this decision and then being able to look at the big picture and of course what you want to commit your life to when you're done with school where you want to go when you're done with school so the ultimate goal of CEO in residence is not just to say this is my experience look at me now look at how great I am but to say listen this is my experience these are some of the successes these are some of the moments I wish I had done things differently. What is your experience? Where do we find synergy? What can I share with you that helps you absorb, you know, this, this, this entire experience a little bit more? And ultimately, my goal is to be authentic because that's the thing. Especially with young people, they love authenticity. Listen, they can, they can, they can see a, a fakeness through you. So if you're not going to come here and tell me exactly how things worked out, you know, in those moments that you don't necessarily look um, as spectacular because you didn't do something that is, you know, uh, essentially the greatest thing. They want to hear the authentic stories. Where did you fail? How did you pick yourself up when you failed? You know, the thing about mentorship also for me, which is also encompassed and see you in residence, it's not about moments of me sharing my success with you. Who cares about the success if I can't learn something about being a better person? So the, the, the value I found was talking or is talking more about what perhaps I should have done and done better. What I can see you doing that may get you in a situation where you might have some regrets and what advice I can share with you. And, and those moments of never sharing fear or moments of fear that then derail your ambition. So that's what the, you know, the, the, the experience encompasses, and it also kind of flows into general mentorship, how I like to mentor. I want us to take a small segue, and then we'll come back to some of the major themes. I'm curious to know, as someone who has worked um, between the divide of you know, corporate communications and media, what is someone who's looking to transition, what is something that they would they would be shocked by around the significant difference in that. How do they prepare to make that journey? I know for you, it was from, again, for you, it's like back to back, all of that. But whether they were transitioning from media to communications uh, or, 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 or vice versa, what is that insight in there? Well, I think 
what let me let me just take it from my perspective on why corporate communications has been and will always be an essential pillar in who I am today, the kind of communicator and storyteller I am. Corporate communications tends to tends to share a certain power or a certain strong discipline when it comes to the essence of branding. You know, because corporates are so, you know, they're so hell bent on having a perfect brand, so hell bent on understanding their audience so that they can give their audience exactly what their audience wants. They're always really conscious about the external public. I mean, what are people saying about them? How do people feel about them? Because that essentially affects how your consumers, you know, um, either endorse uh, 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 or support your brand. And I think for me, when you're on the media landscape, um, it's very okay to be, okay, I design corporate communications and what it has taught me. And I compare it to specializing in one particular part of medicine. So you can be a doctor, you can, you can, you can practice generally, or you can be a specialist. What happened to me during corporate communications is it taught me the power and the essence of latching onto a brand, designing the brand, packaging the brand so that it satisfied, satisfies a specific need. And so you'll find that even when you're moving from corporate communications to media, um, there's nothing really to shock you, but there's something to pay attention to. What do you want your voice to stand for? What, which area do you want to specialize that allows people to see you on TV, hear your voice on radio, see your podcast and immediately understand that it's going in a certain direction because that is your speciality. So it may not necessarily shock you, perhaps, but I want to believe, let's look at the glass half full. It may encourage you to, to look at specific areas that you innately feel are, are you, you know, um, so, I, I say that when you look at perhaps investigative journalism, you look at medical journalism, you even look at legal, legal journalism, it's not, we often don't categorize media that way. But that is what corporate communications taught me. Like, can you package yourself so that you understand your audience better? What is the texture of your audience? What are they looking for? When they come to you, what are they seeking for you to give them that can give them the assurance that, oh, the time they spent with you is time well spent. So it may not, again, and I say this the third time, it, it won't shock you per se, but it might just make you sit up a little bit and, and suddenly you're identifying that, oh, I have an audience and my audience has a need and I need to work towards that audience's need. A lot of people who also practice media on a mass, uh, you know, uh, scale. I've heard people, you know, misalign them and think, oh, you know what? It's for the masses. There's nothing like it's for the masses because even the masses like to hear certain things. They like to feel a certain way. So when you, you know, you are say, oh, well, you know, this kind of show is for the masses. No, it's not for the masses. It's for the masses in terms of numbers, but it's for a collective of people who want to hear something done as, you know, something a specific way or feel something a specific way. That's, that's my humble opinion. Um, so yeah, corporate communications move into media. I think a lot of my colleagues who have moved from media to corporate communications, they agree with me that the moment they touched com corporate communications, they found themselves specializing. The moment they got out of corporate communications back into the media, they found themselves specialized and, and, and specific about what they wanted to share with your audience.
it seems like you're reading my mind because the next thing we're going to talk about really is the <laughs> is the shift in journalism and media and how we can make that field better. And in fact, I was speaking to another Daniel. Um, I have a couple of very incredible Daniels in my life. <laughs> and he, we were talking about how we, we need to specialize in media. And, you know, in Ghana, a lot of things are happening. And for us, yeah. we were talking about business journalism and how we need to have yes. a lot of very specified journalists who are great analysts and business reporters and economists who can speak to the nuances of Ghana and perhaps Africa at scales, economic dilemmas. And we sometimes don't have it enough. What does the media landscape need to do to get to a stage where we are being informed at a more refined level? And like you were saying, we are not getting the news as a general mass audience when we could get more detailed, more nuanced, more informed journalism. Today, uh, well, hey, disclaimer, I'm not a journalist. I didn't study journalism. I've never, uh, 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 I've never advertised myself as a journalist. I don't even know what it feels like to be a journalist. So my friends who are in the journalism field, I always say, Charlie, you guys, you need to try you because journalism is a beast. It's, you know, I, I'm just one of those, one of those people who didn't go to medical school, but I'm practicing massage. You know what I mean? And, and, <laughs> you know, my friends are halfway, you know, half of them, they're like, ah, but you've been doing this for 20 years. I'm like, yeah. But I mean, I, I practice massage. You guys practice real surgeries, you know, and, and kudos to you. Um, but yes, um, the times are changing, um, drastically. Um, I wish I could ask a colleague in the media space what it feels like to study journalism and suddenly be thrown in a situation where you've got to do a business story. Um, I find that a lot of people are, are really hell bent on learning business. I mean, uh, my good friend, uh, George at jo Joy FM, I always listen to him and I say, well, George, how do you do it? Because you speak like a businessman and he'll tell you, well, because when you've been doing something long, long enough, you become specialized. And when you have that genuine desire for it, you force yourself to find specialization. Um, but with all due respect, you know, I think that this is something that can be taught right off the onset in schools. I think maybe after your first, your second year of journalism school, you can be given an opportunity to choose what your specialization is so that by the time you come out and, 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 and to some extent, that is why I love the idea that um, of sharing with my friends in the media or even the, my, my mentees, uh, um, don't don't assume that the very first job you need to find out of media or journalism school is a job in the media. It could be a communications job with it, with the United Nations. It could be a communications job with a corporate communicate, you know, in a corporate communications department, because the essence is the same. The power of communication, which you learn in school is the same. But a lot of us think, Oh, right after media school, right after journalism school, the very first thing I have to do is work for the, for the newspaper. The very first thing. Well, yes and no. You have options. So the media landscape is, the, the, sorry, the communications landscape is huge. It provides you with millions of opportunities. So should we um, understand specialization right from school? Yes, I think we should. And I think it will be fantastic to see more, you know, business uh, uh, journalists, more medical journalists, more legal journalists, on and on and on. Because then when you're sitting in front of your audience, you are not having to create 
questions out of perhaps what you don't know, but you're creating questions out of your experience or your expertise. So I can imagine, you know, doctors and, and, and lawyers and construction uh, uh, architects and uh, project managers, etc., giving classes um, about your field in media school. It, it, you should be able to do that. I think that's brilliant. One of the things that we have gone into detail across different seasons of the podcast is education and it always finds itself coming back and i'm happy we're also talking about media education and journalism here and the opportunities that that could have in the new paradigm of what the media landscape could be because i feel like expertise and specialty is very very important in the time that we live now because the audience is more informed now it's not as previous there is an internet people if they don't have the expertise themselves, can Google and, you know, they can use ChatGTV now <laughs> to, to make themselves seem more smarter and more informed. And so you should come very, very well find. There is the concept of the new African narrative that has been spanning across for a very long time. You have been at the forefront for that as far as, I think, 2007. What has that experience of, you know, working to tell African stories told you about the power of storytelling of the continent? And from where you started and where you see us now, how, how far do we have to go to make sure that we genuinely get the world to believe in the narrative of Africa that we've been selling for past decade or so now? Africa is, for me, the most beautiful place to learn how to tell stories and the most beautiful reason to be a storyteller. Come on, look at us. But from, from, from our problems to our successes to our food to our issues. How can you not want to tell this African story, whichever direction, you know, it comes from? 2007, I had the unique opportunity of working for Studio 53. Um, it was a TV show that I was working on. Um, and, it allowed me to travel the continent and to tell stories about the beautiful aspects of the continent. And I think that this Mnet show at the time, DSTV, was a wonderful way to, to see the continent, that the continent is not Ghana, that Africa is not Nigeria, that Africa is not South Africa. Africa is 54, now perhaps 50, 55 countries, each having their own kind of culture and traditions, each having even within them hundreds, sometimes even thousands of, of dialects, each having their own unique identity. And there is power in our diversity. And then there's also power in our unity. At the time, telling the African story from the perspective, you know, of the African lifestyle, the beautiful hotels and the artists, etc. It allowed me the power of learning. You know, I learned that my Africa is not one country. My Africa is all these countries and my Africa is the respect I have for all these countries. Today, um, when I look at what I do from the perspective of laying, you know, claiming my Africanness and using that as a platform for storytelling globally, and of course, casting my mind back to how I started, I'm filled with nothing but pride, honestly, because Isaac, honestly, who do I want to tell the story about the place I come from? You know, and, and it's also, when you own your narrative, you are able to tell um, the truth 
and not just from the perspective of what you want to hide, but from the perspective of sharing the fact that, listen, I'm not 100% proud of this aspect of the continent, but I am willing to contribute to change the things that I'm not proud about. And I am very proud about this part of the continent, and I'm willing to contribute to anything it takes to make sure that we safeguard that thing that I found most extraordinary, extraordinary about my continent. So... This is, um, a, it's a, listen, it is time. It is a wonderful time to be African. It's a wonderful time to be an African storyteller. It is a wonderful time to be on the continent, to work on the continent from wherever you are. It's a wonderful time to ascertain and identify what it is about the continent that you feel you can contribute to changing. And ultimately, it's a wonderful time to teach the things about the continent that people don't see or that people have refused to see. We're not perfect, and we never said we were perfect. We're not. Uh, um, we're not the best. We never said we were the best, but we have elements of what we love about ourselves that we can claim is the best. Our food is the best. Our music is the best. Our people, our fashion is the best. Um, and then, in the same vein, we know what our problems are. And the thing about the African you talk to today is. They're not just sitting back and waiting for somebody to solve their problem. They're finding ways of collaborating with that someone to create a, a, a bespoke solution to that African problem. Listen, we're not on an island. We cannot do it all on our own. And I respect it. But the African narrative is, it means essentially that we're involved, perhaps even at the forefront of what it would take for this continent to be extraordinary because we have everything. We are everything and we do everything. So the African narrative for me from when I started to now is, you know, it, it hasn't changed. Perhaps maybe it's a little bit mature. Now today, it just doesn't only, you know, celebrate the beauty of the continent. It celebrates the kinds of solutions our African entrepreneurs are coming up with, their innovations and the pride with seeing how many of them are willing to, to, to continue to contribute to the continent to the to the to the continent's uh, emergence i think that's what i was going to um so i was going to talk to you about being the host of africa's business heroes um which is one of the biggest uh, competitions on the continent by the jack ma foundation we see a lot of entrepreneurs on the continent now and they are doing amazing what is your vision for african entrepreneurship let me say specifically, African women entrepreneurship. You know, the competition, what it does is that it enables people to platform their solutions, but also support them financially. Women on the continent have historically not gotten finance for their startups, for their technology companies, etc. And when we see some of the big raises happening, um, it's not always um, a great side because the numbers for women are very low. In these um, competitions where I believe that you also bring in your mentoring role there. What do you tell these women entrepreneurs and what are you telling all women entrepreneurs across Africa on how to break the, uh, the barriers that uh, they, they may face to, 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 to create the solutions that they want to see come to pass on the continent? Isaac, I remember my first conversation with Jack Ma and it was filled with encouragement. It was in November 2019, um, and I just hosted the Africa Netpreneur Prize. In 15 seconds, he essentially told me to keep doing what I do, never to stop, and to keep pushing. 
um, for what I believe in. Um, and I remember at the time his, 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 um, chief of staff, Jason Powell, who now oversees, um, all the, um, international projects out of the Jack Ma Foundation, um, also kind of reiterated that. And you see, Isaac, that's the thing about when you are passionate and when you are determined to do something. The same passion and determination that I see in our African female entrepreneurs, and then of course our African entrepreneurs at large. We know what the problems are. We identify with the problems and we are open for business. We are open for partnerships and collaborations. If you give us the chance, we will, we will remold what seems to be or what may be called an African problem. And what I often say to my female um, uh, uh, entrepreneurs in this space across the continent, in Ghana, Nigeria, South Africa, Egypt, what is your true authentic story? Why did you start what you're doing? Because that's what I find with a lot of female entrepreneurs. We will always spin a problem, uh, a challenge, uh, a roadblock into a solution because it occurs to us that, listen, if we are seeing feeling and going through this surely then there must be more women who are seeing and feeling and go through it we won't look away perhaps if we find a solution to this problem it might just become the kind of innovation that women at large needed even men at large need so through the um, africa's business heroes i find that a lot of the entrepreneurs proudly i say this you know and i'm so happy you asked me to do this but a lot of the entrepreneurs are seeing what is innately problematic in their communities in their societies and they're not looking the other way they're not saying well that's somebody else's problem because you know what i'm getting on a flight and i'm leaving or they're not saying oh that's somebody else's problem because you know what i don't have what it takes they're saying wait hang on a second perhaps if i start finding a small solution it might balloon and become a big innovation that the that the continent has needed for a long time so specifically my female entrepreneurs my colleagues in this space my colleagues in the abh community the women oh we are so powerful and and every single woman you look at um you, you trace trace the reason for her her business the reason is always something that affected her personally and that's the beauty of entrepreneurship um when it comes to talk about the concept of entrepreneurship on the continent i think that every single entrepreneur is the result of not looking away from something that could have crippled their com community that's what I think. Every single African entrepreneur is providing an extraordinary solution to a problem that has either been there since we were born, we were thought of, or a problem that has just started being, you know, being, being, um, or a problem that has just started on the continent. So it, it, I'm passionate about entrepreneurship. Every single company you work for, Isaac, and I don't know how many companies you've worked for, for me, every single company I work for, I always ask myself one thing. Who started the company? Why did they start the company? The company is started by an entrepreneur. And they started it because they saw a problem. So if I have problems in my community, I'm going to go solve those problems. You know, I, I, it's not about being a savior to all, but it's about being a savior to some. And hopefully those some become all eventually. So I hope I've answered your question. I get very passionate when you're talking about African entrepreneurship. But I think the, the Africa's business heroes, being the host, being a communications trainer for, for the top 10, has given me the absolute privilege of hearing these stories. There's tens of thousands of them I hear every year. And it continues to give me the courage that, wow, 
our emergence is coming and our emergence, respectfully so, sits in the hands of these selfless entrepreneurs who will not stop until they find a solution to the problem. So this year, you have begun the Anita Enskin Network. How does that differentiate itself from the Anita Enskin Media? And what do you seek to do with that? Isaac, um, first of all, I'm going to hire you as my CEO because you're saying you're asking me all the right questions, making me look so good, making me sound so good on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> when I created Anita Erskine Media, I had a concept in mind, and that concept was to take stories because stories are also very diverse. You know, so some stories can be told in a talk show format. Some stories have to be told in a game show format. Some stories have to be told in film. Others have to be told in documentary. I knew there would come a time when I would tell all these stories within specific formats. So I created Anita Erskine Media to start that journey. And I, and I created Anita Erskine Media around the same time when I felt I needed to realign my voice with something. Um, I needed to step away from the comfort zone of working with, you know, in traditional media, quote unquote, and be in a space where I could carve these stories and spread them the way I wanted to spread them. Even when I created Anita Erskine Media and I started Shiro's directly under the Anita Erskine Media uh, on umbrella. A lot of media houses continue to support Viasat aired Shiro's, GH1 aired Shiro's, DSCV aired Shiro's. At a point in time, we've talked about evolution on this podcast. Evolution was happening. And evolution meant I had to find an outlet for the stories I was telling because more stories are coming. More content is coming. So I created... Anita Erskine Media, or I reimagined Anita Erskine Media as a group, as a holding, and built individual companies within Anita Erskine Media that could satisfy the needs for this, you know, for this huge army of, of stories that was coming. So the differentiation between Anita Erskine Media and, you know, all the other companies under my group is it holds the entire group together. Anita Erskine Media is the mothership. And under that, we've got, you know, Anita Erskine Network, which I just launched. We've got Boss Lady Productions, which I launched uh, during uh, COVID. Um, we have Anita Erskine Films, which is coming towards the end of the year. And we've got, you know, Women in Elevation and Media, which is the mentorship aspect of it. There is so much greatness coming out of Anita Erskine Media. So much greatness coming out of Anita Erskine Media. I would definitely not want to talk about uh, talk to Anita Eskin and not talk to our film, which seems like um, a shadow of the distant past, but we know for the fans no. of Anita Eskin that Anita Eskin is an award-winning <laughs> <an> award <laughs> actress. So tell us about your some wow. of your film days, and I'm happy to say that you are bringing it back, um, and what should we expect? Um, I'm not going to answer this question without saying loudly, <laughs> Shirley Frimpong Manso, I love, respect, and I honor you. I was in Shirley's office, 2017 perhaps, and Shirley sat me down for two minutes. She said, listen, what are you doing about your acting? Because I need to, I know you know, I know you are one of Ghana's best actresses. What is this you're doing? Why are you hiding this under the rug? Why are you walking away from opportunities, you know, to act? Isaac, it was a moment of 
it was a humbling moment, first of all, because my big sister was giving me, um, she was blasting me, essentially, as we say in Ghana. She was, she was, she was telling me off. Um, but I went away thinking, yes, really, why, 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 why am I not acting? Why am I so afraid? And I don't think that it was fear per se. I think that sometimes, as blessed as we may be with all these skills we have, we also equally have to be surrounded by people who are who are really invested in our skills and people who find pride in helping us realign ourselves, our dreams with our skills. And that's what Shirley did for me. So, so I started, you know, with Shirley on Yellow Pepe. That was a Maggie series, an online series. And I played Anna, who was more or less the big sister in a group of women who were trying to discover themselves. Um, and then, uh, I played, uh, uh, Rama Robertson in, uh, Aquaba Magic's, uh, Dede. And I played the matriarch who is superly confused, but at the same time has this outer shell of hardness to, to prove to the world, rest of the world that she is in control. Uh, in between that, I acted in Shirley's um, perfect picture 10 years later as a psychologist. And and even uh, prior to that, I acted in Yvonne, Yvonne Nelson's uh, Single and Married, where I played myself as a narrator. Um, so I've been given wonderful opportunities. And honestly, I didn't realize how much I loved acting until I had to be on set almost every day for two years, um, acting as Rama Robertson. I thought, wait, hang on a second. I love this thing. You know, I can be whatever you want me to be. Just snap a finger and I can flip, you know, but, but, um, Acting had to be rebirthed, you know, and, and I needed help um, claiming my space as an actress. Shirley gave me that help, literally held my hand every single day, built my confidence in front of the camera. Um, and today I am looking at working on two or actually three new projects um, over the next couple of years. One of them is a Hollywood movie, which which you will see. I won't tell you about it, Isaac. I can see you want me to. You guys, I can see it. you want me to. You want to twist my arm. I will not tell you. I will not tell you. The, 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 the MOU has been signed. Um, um, okay. The, the NDA has been signed. So you'll see the movie when it comes out. So I've got these wonderful projects on the horizon. And I do have to say that um, sometimes when you feel you have it all, uh, you may not. Maybe the one last thing you need is a person who can actually say, you've got it to give you the right kind of encouragement, the right degree of encouragement to pursue that aspect of your dream. Yeah, so look out for the next evolution of Anita Eskin, the actress, maybe producer, <laughs> filmmaker. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's all in there. You know what I mean? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, on, on, on having it all and also segueing yeah. to the end of the conversation, you've been given the opportunity to um, host a lot of big events. Recently, um, VP of the USA, Kamala Harris, came to, came to Ghana, mm -hmm. State Banker Hall. You were the privileged mm -hmm. host of the event. Um, right. Tell us, to end the conversation, some of the people where you've had the amazing opportunity to, you know, host in your career that I think that become yeah. some of the bigger highlights. I know there are probably so many highlights. Maybe you want to share something with us. Well, I mean, thank you very much for that question. I've been privileged to host um, a plethora uh, of of, of uh, African presidents, uh, both from all parts of of the continent. Um, I've been privileged to host, um, you know, CEOs and um, uh, leaders in in the business community uh, on the continent and in Europe, you know, in North America. I've been privileged to host uh, members of the royal family, uh, again, both in Ghana and around the world. 
and I think I could go on and on and on and on, but Isaac, you know, let's, let's, let's just put things into perspective. A lot of these opportunities come to me, um, today, cause I think I, I have no problem putting up my hand and saying, Hey, you know what? I'm available. And that's the lesson I want to share. Because of your expertise, you may be thought about and you may be considered. But because of your commitment and your innate desire to continuously support, you may be called upon. Um, and, and I feel that, you know, a lot of people who may listen to this podcast who are pursuing careers as MCs and the like may ask, hey, but how could I? How will I? When will I? You know, can I? And I say, yes, you can. Uh, you can be the host of anything you want to be, but also bear in mind that we exist in a place, in a, in a space around the world where there's millions of us. Why should you be chosen above everybody else? Sometimes it's a commitment, uh, uh, is, a, is an element of commitment. Other times it's an element of, of favor. You know, it's always an element of favor. We thank God for that. But I think you also have to consistently prove that you are willing to take the next, the next step to elevate yourself. You know, your talent of 10 years. It, 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 it outgrows itself. You've got to sharpen your skills, every opportunity you have. So the conversation and how you were having the conversation 10 years ago may be only relevant for 10 years ago. What you talk about today, because times are changing, may be relevant only today as well. So when I get called by these, um, you know, and it's always an honor when my phone rings, when I get an email, when my agent calls, when my business manager calls, it's always an honor to be told that, listen, you've been selected for this. The first thing I always do is I say, thank God, because I'm always, always praying for it. I never once say to myself, yeah, they know who I am. So they'll call never. Isaac, I could share the number of emails I have sent to organizations and events at the beginning of the year saying, hey, you know what? You may not know me, but I just read about you on LinkedIn. Here's my CV. Here's my portfolio. They don't always respond, but those who sometimes respond may never even have known about me. And then suddenly he's like, oh, really? This is who you are. So that's what I want to share. Big names, big opportunities, but it also comes with a degree of desiring. Desire, desire it enough to keep knocking on the door and the door shall open. It has been an amazing pleasure listening and learning to the Anita Eskin on the Change Africa podcast. We're, we're, we're very excited to have had you on the podcast. I think I speak for myself. And I definitely speak for everyone that is going to be listening to the, to the podcast. And I'm happy that out of all the great conversations that you've had and will continue to have, we have shared a few minutes of your time where we've given some insights that perhaps you won't find any other word. And um, <laughs> it will be a good reason now for people to, to listen to the Change Africa podcast with Anita Enskin. Thank you very much. Thank you too, Isaac. Thank you, Daniel. And I know that uh, great things are coming to you guys as well. You're custodians of people's stories. So, you know, I mean, one of these very fine days, we're going to bribe you to just change our stories a little bit so we can put it on our CVs and our portfolios. So guys, well done. I know it's not easy, but you keep it moving. You make it look good. You make it feel fresh. And I really, I do appreciate your time today. The Change Africa podcast is produced by Isaac Abwa and Daniel Murky. It is executive produced by Tim Yarstratus. The theme music and digital production is by Daniel Quay and graphic design by Andrew Ayi. This podcast is a production of Nexa Media.